Hello, my name is Stephen Brown, composer. Welcome to Manhandling the Brain, the latest episode of the Brainland podcast. Brainland is a new opera based on three stories from the history of neuroscience. You have just heard the music I wrote to open the story at the centre of the opera that concerns Agash Manish and Walter Freeman, doctors who were key figures in the psychosurgery movement in the middle of the 20th century. This episode of the podcast will provide some historical background to that movement and the individuals involved in it, and explore how so many doctors came to think it a good idea to damage the brains of their patients. We've been collaborating with the dance and opera departments at Morley College in London and have recorded two scenes from this section with voices. We've also workshopped those scenes with choreographer Adrian Luck, a German Tanztheater specialist, and his students. My name is um, Adrian. I am a tutor and choreographer for Tanztheater or Tanztheater. Um, living and working in London. Um, I first heard uh, about the project uh, of Brainland um, from Tim, I believe. And the topic was uh, straight away very, very interesting to me. Tanz theatre works a lot around the human condition. It's quite a psychological art form. And the main goal is really to try and um, express an emotional or physical state so obviously um, psychology and philosophy and social observations are the key ingredients um, so I was quite surprised to hear about an opera uh, about this topic but I'm quite fascinated by it um, so Tim approached me and asked if I have interest in you know creating something around the theme And what we have done uh, for one term, uh, for about 11 or 12 sessions, um, is to use um, the themes that are um, very important for the, for the opera. We did not yet put it on the actual opera music, but what we have done is to, to find tasks and questions that dive into the yeah, psychology of uh, what we believe the patients might have gone through. Um, and we try to reflect their physical and emotional state through the way of moving um, that is respectful, but also really highlights and showcases the uh, feeling that, that might have been um, prevalent uh, uh, for them at the time. Now, the thing that was challenging uh, for us in the very beginning is that Tanz Theatre does not really work with a clear narrative, meaning that the story does not start from A and then goes to B. It's more fragments. So the way of storytelling is, is quite different. So therefore, uh, we tried very hard to um, create something essential. Um, so we had to get almost a little bit away from, from the bigger context and just try to dive deep um, into what we believe uh, uh, is, is, is quite a good reflection um, of, of human states. Um, so I, I hope and, and, and believe that Tanz Theatre can add something uh, to a project like this. 
I am very excited actually uh, for this project to go to the next stage. Uh, there's so many great people involved. Um, the combination, obviously, of opera, of, of music that has been written, uh, of singers, of staging, um, and now as Tanz uh, Theater as part of this, um, I'm really quite hopeful uh, about the, the future of this project. to stage and film these scenes later in the year at the Old Operating Theatre Museum in London, of which more later in the podcast. To tell us more about Manish and Freeman, I'm joined by Ken Barrett, the person who has written about and researched the stories in Brainland. For 25 years, in the middle of the last century, damaging the brains of the severely mentally ill was widely accepted as a good thing by our colleagues. How the hell could they do that? Yeah, that question's really what first got me interested in the subject. Um, I mean, for our generation of clinicians, it was frankly an embarrassing part of our history. But to answer it, you have to understand our thinking about the brain evolved in the century before all this began in the 1930s. From the middle of the 19th century, medics started reporting syndromes, particularly deficits of communication, movement, behaviour, after very localised areas of brain were damaged which led to the view that the cortex, the outer grey matter of the brain, could be divided into specialist skill areas. Also mainstream was the idea that brain cells can't regenerate. When they're damaged, that's it. But the First World War turned all that on its head. Thousands of fit young men suffered very localised brain damage due to shrapnel and bullets. And yes, they did suffer specific deficits as a result, but over months, many made remarkable recoveries. So by the 1920s, the brain came by many to be seen uh, as well capable of adaptation and recovery after damage. And that was the thinking that set the stage for psychosurgery. The brain of a severely mentally ill person was clearly not functioning correctly. So why not give it a chance to rewire by surgically damaging it? Back in the 30s, there were also hundreds of thousands of severely disabled and distressed mentally ill people in hospitals with little hope of recovery or discharge. And there was a trend for shock treatments, insulin coma, malaria, electroconvulsion. Effective drugs didn't start to emerge until the 1950s. But Manish was a neurologist. How did neurologists get involved in this? Yeah, Manish has a really interesting history. Um, he came from a well-to-do family and trained as a doctor in Portugal and then in neurology in Paris. He becomes an academic neurologist, but before the First World War, also gets elected as an MP, and in fact he rose to be the equivalent of Portugal's foreign secretary. But he was a liberal, so when Portugal veered to the right and then Salazar's dictatorship in the 1920s, he gave up politics, concentrated on his academic career, and became renowned internationally. Um, he was the first person to get X-ray images of the brain's arteries, angiograms. But perhaps surprisingly, he didn't get the Nobel Prize for that. Like many neurologists at the time, Monish, a nerve doctor, if you like, saw middle-class psychiatric outpatients. Um, he seems to have been struck by how fixed those states of mind were, and I guess frustrated by how little he could actually do to help them. Unlike Freud, who was also a neurologist, uh, Monish thought about mental illness in terms of faulty brain pathways, 
So he hypothesized that in the mentally ill, some of those pathways may become abnormally fixed. If so, then interrupting them might relieve some of the symptoms. Well, he attended a London conference on the frontal lobes in 1935. What he heard seems to have chimed with his idea. In any event, when he returned to Portugal, it was determined to put his idea to the test. And that took a special kind of confidence, um, arrogance, you might even say hubris. When he called his procedure leucotomy, as he was to his mind, cutting or interrupting just a small number of brain pathways, in contrast, of course, with what psychosurgery soon evolved into. We staged Manish's first leucotomy in Brainland, the first time neurosurgery has been included in an opera, so far as we know. I gather that after a year or so, Manish returned to concentrating on his angiography work, but when psychosurgery was at its height in the late 40s, it was his leucotomy that finally got him the Nobel Prize for medicine. Which just goes to show how mainstream the procedure had become. By that time, many thousands of operations had been performed around the world, the vast majority much more destructive than Manish's original. Which brings us to the second character in our story, Walter Freeman. Freeman worked mainly as a neuropathologist in a 3,000-bed state mental hospital in Washington, D.C. He met Monish at that conference in London in 1935, and they exchanged addresses. When Monish published his leucotomy experiment in a book form, a monograph, the following year, he sent Freeman and a lot of other colleagues a copy. In fact, when doing research for this, I was really excited to find one of those signed copies in the Royal Society of Medicine archive. Uh, Freeman had done some neurology training in Europe, so had some private outpatients. He was also doing some teaching at the university with a young neurosurgeon called James Watts. Manish's book um, excited him, and he persuaded Watts to try the operation. The problem was that the large mental hospital in which he worked refused to allow their patients to be brain damaged by the pair, so they turned to smaller private hospitals for their patients. I know that Freeman disliked Manish's term leucotomy, but called his operation prefrontal lobotomy, which is, I guess, telling. Absolutely. He and Watts soon decided that Manish's tool and procedure were just too delicate. They came to believe that to get the most benefit, you needed to sever most of the links between the prefrontal area and the rest of the brain. And they did that by inserting a blunt instrument through the temporal lobe at the side of the head and basically waggling it up and down. In the end, it was their procedure that caught on internationally because it did get people out of hospital beds, albeit in a much altered and blunted state. It's been estimated that over 70,000 leucotomies and lobotomies were performed around the world before it fell out of favour in the 1960s. I actually found a file in the National Archive at Kew that showed that over 5,000 such operations were carried out in the NHS between 1948 and 53, the first five years of the NHS. And, of course, it was Freeman's next innovation that even turned his surgical colleagues against him, the so-called ice pit lobotomy. Very well. Take them. Take them. Conduct your experiments, your treatments, but be Posterity, heroes, 
tucked away, a stone's throw from London Bridge Station and the Shard, across from Guy's Hospital, is London's old operating theatre museum. Through a unique collaboration, we're hoping to stage and film the psychosurgical story from Brainland in that theatre. To tell us more, I'm joined by one of the curators. Welcome, Monica. Perhaps you could introduce yourself. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Monica Walker, and I am the engagement manager at the Old Operating Theatre Museum and Herb Garrett. So, Monica, tell us about the Old Operating Theatre Museum. The Old Operating Theatre Museum and Herb Garrett is actually located in London Bridge, and we are in the attic of St. Thomas's Church. Now, St. Thomas's Church used to be part of Old St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, which had been in Sadak at least since the 12th century. That is until 1862, when the railway wanted to connect Charing Cross with London Bridge. Um, and, of course, the hospital was in the way. Um, there was um, definitely... Uh, big movement uh, to try to remain inside um, that had been its home for about 650 years. But at the end of the day, progress won. And um, St. Thomas's Hospital was relocated um, to Lambeth, and it's still functioning as a hospital um, in front of the House of Parliament. So um, we have a very long-standing tradition of um, issues connected to the history of medicine as it developed from pretty much the 12th century until at least 1862. Um, which pretty much puts a lot of the medical tradition in perspective. We are, as a matter of fact, an in-situ kind of uh, museum, so the space has survived. Um, the attic not only holds a herb garret, which is the oldest function of the space, which pretty much means that this was a space where the apothecaries, who were the you know time periods, kind of like chemists, druggists, um, pharmacists put all into one um, could dry and cure herbs um, and then they will make medicines with them and the um and they could store them in the attic as well. It was dark, it was um, away from vermin, it was dry. So perfect place for that kind of function. Um, and pretty much the attic functioned like that for about 100 years. Um, and in 1822, um, there was a need to uh, redevelop the, um, the space uh, to hold the operating theater for the women's wards of Olsen Thomas's hospital. Um, and for that purpose, uh, because the actual attic was at the same level that the women's wards, um, it just made it very easy easy to just repurpose that space. Um, so in 1822, um, a passage or doorway was basically um, created between the women's wards and, of course, the attic, um, as it was already being used by the apothecaries before. Um, and then, of course, what you're going to see there is that they transformed the space completely. They opened up a skylight as they needed a lot of light to basically... Um, uh, do the operations that uh, were going to take place in the space. They also created a hemicycle with scanned uh, rows of scans uh, where the students could basically come in and stand um, all around, everybody having perfect lines of sight to what was happening at the center of the theater, which, of course, um, this is how they learn. They learn by observation. Um, and, of course, afterwards, the what used to be the Herb Garrett was probably transformed into a post-op ward um, but with the introduction of additional windows to allow the light to come in into the separated sections, uh, which probably will have like a, a little bed um, in there as well. Uh, so this is basically um, an operating um, theater, which is the operating theater that is the oldest one in Europe. Um, it predates the, ad the advent of anesthesia and antiseptics. Um, and of course, 
it is one of those spaces that while what happened in there was quite horrible in terms of, um, you know, patients' perspective um, because of what was going to happen to them. At the same time, it stands as a very important kind of space of hope. Um, at the time, the only three operations that were known to be able to save someone's life uh, were three. Um, and these three operations will be the only ones taking place in the operating theater itself. Um, one of them will be um, amputations. So anything that is external to the cavities, the, you know, there's no internal surgery at the time. So um, anything like um, compound fracture, um, any sort of like tumor could actually be cut out um, and and, you know, amputated uh, at the time. Um, you can also have um, lithotomies, which means the removal of bladder stones, uh, much more common in men than in women. But still, when you have a bladder stone the size of a chicken egg that does not allow you to pee, um, it will definitely kind of like kill you. And therefore, um, going through a surgical procedure will be the um, safest and fastest way to save someone's life that, um, you know, are suffering from these, you know, huge bladder stones. Um, and then, of course, we're going to have trepanations, one of the oldest surgical procedures known to mankind, um, but interested enough, um, very efficient in terms of saving someone's lives when they have um, received some sort of uh, trauma to the head um, and there is a swelling and the swelling needs to be alleviated. Uh, we do have a lot of indications that uh, many people actually survive um, these um, kind of procedures and that's what makes them so important and so uh, powerful in a way because they were in many ways the last ditch effort um, to save someone's lives and and that's why even though these procedures may have been done without anesthetics or antiseptics um, they still save quite a lot of lives at the time period so quite an interesting space allows us to tell the history of um, medicine through what happened in St. Thomas's Hospital and of course the history of surgery itself uh, which all the way until like um, the advent of of anesthesia and antiseptics uh, was a little bit brutal, but um, not done because they wanted to hurt people, but because they wanted to save someone's life, uh, which I think that is it's, it's quite powerful um, in many ways. It's obviously a unique and atmospheric space. But what attracted you to the Brainland project? Uh, what really interests me and excites me about bringing the Brainland project to the museum is because I love to have conversations between the past and the present. Um, and of course, through the arts, um, those conversations can be very meaningful, meaningful and, and impactful. Um, having a project that involves music and performance and actually making that happen in a space that I believe um, is still continuing in a way its healing function, its teaching function, um, albeit in a different kind of like um, format. Um, I, I find it very poignant and important um, to have this kind of project um, take life um, in that space because it's an original space. It's an original space that prompts the mind to think, um, to envision what medicine was in the past and how much things have changed and how much more they're going to change in the future. And how can we sit and meditate about these really 
um, interesting concepts because we all have our own medical histories, you know. Some of them are connected to any parts of the body, you know. Our brain is just one part of it. Um, and that's probably where more um, advances are being made as well. So bringing the Brainland Project to the museum seems to be the perfect kind of backdrop to really look at this connection between the past and the present, to really bring that conversation in a format that um, is going to excite and and really kind of think about um, how important these projects are. So yeah, I think that these are a really important uh, project and I can't wait to see it take shape um, and finally being performed in the All Operating Theatre Museum and Herb Garrett. Really looking forward to it. There are a number of other Brainland podcasts if you want to hear more about the project and the stories it tells. Or visit our website brainlandtheopera.co.uk Many thanks to Adrian, Ken and Monica for their contributions. Earlier in the podcast, we heard the voices of Jodie Lee Smith and Hester Dart, Morley College Opera alumni. We close this episode with a section sung by another Morley student, Leo Selick. We are very grateful to them for all their fantastic contribution to the Brainland Project so far. In this extract, Surgeon Lima celebrates the achievements of his boss, Monish. This doctor, this saviour, has torn through the veil of tears the name of Agash Monish. 